Hello. This is the Fight Back Podcast, hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Very. Here, you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Hey there, Conscious Combat Soul. What, you? Yes, I'm talking to you. If you listen to this podcast, then you are a human being who loves combat and wants to be conscious about the way that you're doing it. You're interested in being more trauma-informed, more inclusive, and more ethical in the way that you teach and participate in martial arts and combat sports. And that's why I would like to invite you specifically to join our new group, the Conscious Combat Club. We're on Facebook, and there's an emailing newsletter that you can sign up for, the details for both of which are in the show notes here. But now, let's get to today's episode. All right. Welcome to the Fight Back podcast. I am here today with Dr. Amber Tucker. Now, Amber is an assistant professor. She is a researcher. She's a mixed martial artist, purple belt, if I'm not mistaken. She's a mom. She's a community activist. She's been involved in a really, really exciting project that is right up our alley here at the Fight Back podcast. So I want to hand over to you first, Amber. Can you elaborate a bit more about that? Uh, introduce yourself to everybody. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm an assistant professor of sociology, and I am also a mixed martial artist and a researcher. My my research is um, it looks at trauma and intersectionality, specifically the experiences of women and women of color. Um, I have some separate stands that are specific to like motherhood. So that's one aspect of my research and then um, adult development. So I have a couple different strands there of my research. Um, I'm a mixed martial artist. I train across kickboxing, boxing, um, wrestling, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And like Georgia mentioned, I'm a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm also a competitor, so I compete very often. Um, and I'm also a coach. And I just, this year, I was just given our gym's first women's only jujitsu program. So I'm super excited about that. Ooh. And then a repeat. Yeah, and, and a mom. And I have an adult daughter who, um, she doesn't live at home anymore. She's all grown up and moved away. We have so much to talk about. Let's go back to maybe the the top of that list so your research looks at the intersection of trauma um, for women specifically and specifically women of color what are the type of things that you've looked at yeah um so actually so I'm just finishing this article thank god (laughs) I just I just need to do my citations um so it actually came about when I was doing my dissertation research and I was doing it on um I'm sorry identity, adult identity development in the context of um, higher education. I was specifically looking at the experiences of Black women who had children Mm. um, and were attending institutions like regionally. And so I was just looking at their developmental experiences. And what was such an unexpected finding is that everyone, um, it was a qualitative research project. And so I was in the research too, like across all of my participants, including myself, that we had these childhood backgrounds of complex trauma. Um, and some of the trauma didn't resemble the forms of how we currently 
like talk about trauma, like psych- from a psychological or from a medical perspective. Um, and so like that just sent me into an entirely different um, strand of research and looking at trauma um, and like intersectional experiences in trauma and like how that impacts adults over their lifespan. And specifically, I was looking at black women for this, this project that I'm working on. Um, and some of my major findings, like especially like the idea about or or the the not it's not even the idea about um, experiencing like class social classes trauma not like and so how it's currently written about is like these are all the consequences of living um, at this at this lower socioeconomic status like these are all the things that you're vulnerable to um, but rather looking at the experience itself as being traumatic. And how like that shows up in how people view the world and view themselves in the world. And like there is actually social class trauma <laughs> from that. Um, how like many people who grew up in, you know, like impoverished backgrounds, like me and much of my participants, you know, grew up until adulthood having this like very bad toxic relationship with money, mm-hmm. um, like actually hating it because it just caused so much pain because you went without um that and then there was another finding that was consistent with like much of the research that's been coming out for a while about specifically the experiences of black women and sexual violence um and that was a common thread across all of the women in my study and and if it wasn't um interpersonal violence that they experienced it was generational sexual violence so I think like all the women or the majority of the women talked about having um intergenerational sexual violence as a as a family trauma like the ancestral trauma. And so like that, that was just, um, you know, there wasn't a lot that I could lean on that specifically considered um, the experiences of how race, class, and gender shapes different, not just shapes trauma, but like different experiences in trauma and different forms of trauma. So how like trauma looks different um, based on like your identity. So that that's what I'm currently working on right now. It's super interesting and super relevant because I've been teaching this course about applying trauma-informed principles for martial artists, right? And we got up to the sixth principle of trauma-informed care, which is understanding gender, historical, and cultural issues. And I started to teach on it and I was like, I feel like I can speak to gender, you know, for some part. Of course, I can't, of course, because I only represent one gender. But when we started to speak about ideas around racism um around you know classism around historical issues I was like this is there's just doesn't feel like there's an amount of research reading that I could ever do that would give me enough perspective like we need to pull in people who have lived experience in this space and then listen to them and that part of me was like I'm so excited to get Amber on like we've been talking about doing this podcast for a while but not just because of the work you've been doing in the martial arts and trauma space, but also your expertise in this area, not only as someone with lived experience, but also extensive research into it. So um, I'm really hoping people listening to this podcast can start to think about, you know, um, things like what I want to get into now, which is what are racial microaggressions? How do we understand them? And, And then maybe we can come back around to like how we might see them show up on the mat in the martial arts community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's like the elephant in the room but you know and that's contextual it depends on what region of the world that you're in what um so I'm 
context specific. I'm here in the U.S. And so like what region of the U.S. and, and that is going to shape your experiences around race, culture and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And so the region that I'm in is um, predominantly white. It's the Midwest. Mm. And like in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, for example, um, it's Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so um, many of the people, um, the the Brazilians that you see represented are um, very brown people. They're black people. But coming into like jujitsu in my particular region, there aren't many people that look like me. Um, I've had people come up to me when I was, I, I've had this a couple of times at a tournament and I've had athletes come up to me while I'm sitting in the coach's chair coaching a match. I mean, this was like race and gendered. While I was coaching a match, questioning whether or not I could, I was qualified enough to be in the coach's chair, like both as a woman and then as like a black woman. And then one like competitor said, he was like, oh, no, no offense. I just, I just never seen anybody like you coaching a match. (laughs) So I was like, okay. And I was like, well, if you open up Instagram and type in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you're going to see pages and pages of brown people that look like me that do jiu-jitsu. So I don't know. Um, like th- those are examples. But, um, you know, things like there's actually there's a woman. Uh, she has an Instagram page and also uh, it's a social project. And so she um, I think it's called Black Woman Black Belt. And so she intentionally um, posts highlights of black women um, in jujitsu or well, mixed martial arts, but mostly jujitsu to, to highlight them because of the, the lack of represent the, the lack of representation. Um, and she, someone wrote in t- to her or wrote on her a comment on her page, and they were saying that they were an owner of a gym, and it was, um, and they they had such very little racial diversity, and they knew that there were like women of color in the area, but they couldn't get them, they couldn't draw them into that space, and they were asking her specifically, like, what can we do to make our space feel more like racially inclusive. Um, and it just sparked like this whole debate amongst like many of us in the jujitsu community, especially like people of color and thinking about our spaces, you know, on some hand, like it seems like these spaces could be neutral spaces, right? Like everybody's there for kind of like the same person purpose, but like different purposes, but it's all martial arts and it's respect and discipline and a dojo. But these are also like um, just individuals like who they were before they stepped in the dojo they're the same person when they walk in the dojo I mean like I've heard just recently about someone being in a dojo and they were in the locker room and a guy took off his shirt and he had a white nationalist tattoo and the person who saw the athlete who saw it was black so like he belongs to this like white hate group um and he would and like this is somebody that he trains with and, you know, like, and how did he feel like and how he felt so unsafe, like in that moment and like thinking about like how while we like to think that I not I don't know if we think that, but I, I feel like the perception is that martial arts spaces are like neutral spaces. But and in that way, like it makes it easy to ignore any of the microaggressions around like race or gender that show up in those spaces I think that we um want to believe that so bad so that we don't have to see that even though this is like martial arts as a dose something different than what the rest of the outside world is doing right now in this moment but that all the things that happen in the outside world can come into that world too I think that's important because it just you know yes (laughs) definitely 
Definitely. As you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, I often think about how gender is really interesting within a martial arts space in that men and women train together in a way that you don't see in other sports um, or many other sports and is also very different to the kind of like gendered hierarchy that we tend to see in society. And for that reason, often we offer women's only classes like you've just started doing, right? It's important to give people the option to choose between do I want to go in a mixed sex or do I want to go in a space where I'm going to feel safe? And as you were talking, I just had a thought like, and, and again, like there's not going to be a right or a wrong answer, but if, if spaces don't feel safe, do we need to create like separate safe spaces where people, you know, can know that they're not going to, they're not going to feel worried that like someone's going to meet them in the parking lot afterwards because, you know, like they're seeing them with a the kind of a tattoo that would indicate the fact that like they wouldn't really be friends at all and outside of the that kind of um, container. So, I mean, I don't really have an answer to how we work towards that. Maybe that's going to come out in in research in future, right? Yeah, right. Like, right. Like, how do you, you know, like these spaces that are like on the surface inclusive just by the nature of how it's structured, right? Like martial arts is one of those few things where like so many different people from like different places in life will will meet in one common space for an extended period of time. It's like one of the few activities, hobbies, spaces where like that could happen. So um, yeah, that's definitely a conversation about, you know, reconsidering or even thinking about martial arts spaces as safe spaces. Like, do we even put that label on them? Have we, do we even use that? Have we used that in like, in our, regular everyday conversations when we're describing what we do and like you know to other people do we say well it's a safe space like I don't you know I don't know yeah that's a good question and it's the right time to be asking those kind of questions you know like the jujitsu world certainly has recently been quite rocked by uh, the sexual assault allegations that are coming out particularly you know from Fighters Express but other um, gyms as well that just kind of reminded the community that it's not a you know a well or like waterfall that you walk through and everyone's just kind of purified on the other side of stepping on the mat like if somebody is a sexual predator off the mat they're a sexual predator on the mat if someone's racist off the mat they're probably racist on the mat and I think the thing that I really don't think I have a full understanding of but I'm starting to get an appreciation of is that racism is something that's even more insidious because people don't realize like you can't really be a sexual predator and not realize it it you know, right? But I, I think a lot of folks are um, committing microaggressions and not realizing that that's what they're doing. Certainly, macroaggressions is maybe a different thing, but you know, little things like, oh, I, I didn't realize that someone like you would be teaching uh, right. or coaching is something that the person right. who said it probably didn't realize how like awful that would be yeah. making you feel, but they did it nonetheless. Yep. Yep. And then there's a, um, there's another, there's, um, like speaking from, I'm just going to speak from personal experience, like some of the, like the racial, like microaggressions are racial and gender most oftentimes for me. Right. So, um, I've gotten where it could be at tournaments. I have this happen sometimes at tournaments. It could be like, you know, in the gym where I've had somebody like, and sometimes most of the times it'll be like another woman, not like currently but I've had this experience with some other women 
um, where they just automatically assume that I'm in, like, they'll call me, oh, when I first, I didn't want to roll with, like, I actually had someone tell a coach this, that uh, I don't want to roll with her. She had never met me before. We had never aspired before. And she was like, well, I don't want to roll with her because she seems super intimidating. And so, like, I get that a lot, a lot, a lot. Like, oh, you're so, when I first saw you, you're so intimidating. Oh, I see you at competitions. You're so intimidating. And I go, and it was interesting because like the, I, so oftentimes the people that would tell me that I was intimidating or people who like were just as skilled as I was or like, like their body type and physique was like similar. And I'm like, why would I be more of a threat to you? And so like, that is the most common experience that I get in the mixed martial arts community about the assumption that I have like this extraordinary strength or power. Like I am strong, but like, so are you. So, but like my strength is like extraordinary and, and, and not an extraordinary strength to be admired, but like one to be feared. And so like, that is the assumption of like that, um, it's, it's super hurtful, right? Like, you know, always assuming that I'm like either physically or like mentally strong in some capacity means that I can never be vulnerable ever. Like if I'm experiencing pain, then like no one needs to care because I'm so strong that like, you know, I'll take care of it. But um, yeah, that's my most common experience is that assumption of like, and, and many times they're referring to like physical strength. Like I have some extraordinary strength because, you know, I'm black. Yeah. I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. And that you also wouldn't um, exercise control, like the whole point of doing or doing jujitsu and, and training with each other is like, even if you did have some like capacity, you wouldn't unleash it all upon someone unwillingly, just like as if it's poor harder when we're in a competition straight away, like without rolling with someone, people, someone to make that judgment like that is like. Yeah, yeah cool. that's the most common. I get that. I get that a lot from women, a lot, a lot, a lot. And I'm like, but I just saw you go roll with this six foot one, like 250 pound, like athlete. And then, but you're intimidated by me. Okay. Is there anything that coaches can do to create a culture where those type of microaggressions and other microaggressions are absent? (sighs) Or reduced? I mean... Honestly, I think they're unaware of it, right? Like, so awareness is probably like the initial step. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's exactly why they're microaggressions because they're saw, you know, microaggressions uh, with it. Um, Sue, the one of the ones who coined it said that there are a thousand paper cuts, Mm. right? Like, you know, one paper cut is so small. um, It's irritating, but like, it's not enough to like cause a loss of life or like, you know, like, you know, debilitate you in some type of way. But like after a while, you keep getting more and more and more like that one small paper cut is like now this festering, unhealable wound. Um, So it's like microaggressions. They're so they're painful, but they're like they're micro insults. They're like so subtle and painful. And the, the most insidious part of them is because they're so subtle, like they're almost undetectable. So you have to do the job of like convincing someone that you saw what you saw and you felt what you felt and if they don't see it like if they're unaware of that then like it just it's even more painful because like now you're not even validating what your experience especially if everyone else around you is telling you that's not what it was that's not what it was like you're 
overreacting or like you're bringing that into this space, you know, like that stuff doesn't happen here. So I think the the first part is just the awareness that like people's identities matter on the mat. Like you can't just like, like that militaristic approach where like everybody becomes a universal soldier after they've become stripped of their identities, not like that, like in martial arts, like it has, it like, you know, the structure and the discipline or whatever. And like, yes, we transform into martial artists, but we still are like human beings first and our experiences are next. So, I mean, I guess we're just like that, like having awareness of how that kind of stuff functions or shows up in spaces and just the awareness allows you to be able to like look for it where you wouldn't ordinarily expect it you know check in on like the students who are under the marginalized students and the underrepresented in your academy if you have an academy that's like male dominant like check on the women students and see how they're doing like check in with them um you know ask them what they need instead of you know just assuming I think that yeah but the gender uh back up a little bit the gen the gender pieces uh, I mean, I like, I was just talking about this the other day. Unfortunately, the majority of the injuries that I've had have been because of that subconscious belief that they have that, that some, not all, but some men have that we don't belong in that space. And it's like, and it's a subconscious thing, just like the microaggressions, like it's a subconscious thing. So like, it's hard to attack it and like confront it because like even the people who are doing it don't even realize that they're doing it right like you know I had an injury from like a guy who thought like I don't know I'm I was I'm a higher rank belt and like I just know more and I'm just more skilled and and I also am bigger but like that I see it's like this look in their eyes that I see when they go uh-oh I'm not going to be beat by a girl. That's what I call it. The I'm not going to be beat by a girl. Look, it's mm-hmm. like this switch that you see. And then it just goes all down here from there. And then I had gotten, he had injured me and he did something that wasn't even like jujitsu, <laughs> but it was like, it was survival. He was like in straight survival mode. Like, and his survival, the, the thing that trick that kicked in his survival mode is that he thought he's going to be beat by a girl. So like that, that's how it shows up a lot. Or it can be like the gross opposite where it's like some men will be like, well, I don't want to roll with you because I don't want to hurt you. Or, you know, like, oh, I don't, I don't roll with women. Like, I just feel like I shouldn't, you know, roll with women. Or in the last one, what I hate is the ones that roll with women, but like play with them like their kids. Be like, oh, look, you got me, rear deck and choke. You know, like you're so good. And then like there is, and then, and then the woman herself doesn't even know that that's what the majority of the men are doing. And then, so like, here's like a, a fake scenario, but it could be very real for some people and then go out and like actually have to roll against another woman and then like realize that you're not as good as you thought you were. Right. Because in my experiences, like the women are my, they're my toughest roles. They're my toughest competitors, like outside the gym and in the gym. Like we don't give each other a break um, because we know that we're not like, like both of us are interested in our growth and development. And like, it's not helpful for either one of us to like, you know, just let somebody just dominate us in a role. Like that's not even good training for myself. Like I'm not even going to practice one time, like getting dominated in a role just to make somebody's ego feel better. Like, that's so crazy. 
but anyway, but like that, that, that gender piece, that's probably, that's, I think that's the worst as far as like being an athlete. Cause it's like, like all the, none of those things are helpful to my development as, as an athlete. None of those things like either not taking me seriously or, you know, just completely excusing yourself from the experience of like spiral. And like, I, I pointed this out to like a, a man one time and he was, he had that thing about um, not rolling with women or whatever. And I said, you know, let me just like put it bluntly. Um, you are our biggest threat. <laughs> like statistically, you are our biggest threat. So like if a woman comes in here and she wants to do this and she wants to like, you know, get past that trigger or that fear, like by exposing herself to the trigger and like wants to continue and wants to roll with you so that she can get past that in like a controlled environment. Why would you deny her that? Why would you deny her that? <laughs> like, what is that? Like benevolent patriarchy? <laughs> like, let me protect you. So don't go anywhere because I'm protecting you. But you have no freedom, but you're protected. Like, what? No, definitely. I had an experience like a week ago where I rolled with a woman at a woman's open mat. It was really cool. We like had a bunch of clubs cross training and I rolled with her and she was like a new white belt or fairly new. And she tapped me like fair and square because I'm competitive. Like I don't just let people tap me. And, mm. and she tapped me and she was like, oh, thank you so much for letting me take your back. And I was like, what? <laughs> I did not just let you take my back, but she had only ever rolled with men, right? So because she'd only ever rolled with men, she was just so used to not being sure like what she was being allowed to do and what she genuinely did. This was like a first time experience for her. And I was like, I remember she like went to go back in my garden. I stepped back and I was like, wait, 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 before we roll, I need to get this clear because like, I'm, I'm not going to give you like an ego boost. I'm going to try and take your back now because this is jujitsu and this is what we do but like you got that fair and square you need to back yourself but it's so hard to do that when you're you're really just not sure because you're not getting full intensity from your training partner so yeah I hear that loud and clear I want to talk about um sorry I want to talk about your newest research project because it's so exciting right like imagine ready everybody there's a project combination of weightlifting jujitsu and rock climbing anyone who knows me knows I do all three of those things um and it's all trauma informed working specifically with women of color right so Mm -hmm. tell us about the project Mm -hmm. um so it started a little over a year ago it started initially, um, I was doing this fitness um, program for, it was a martial arts based fitness program. It was a short-term program um, at this organization in the community. And um, the person who was over, who's, who had um, written the grant was like, oh, you've got to meet one of the other people working with this program. He goes, she's a, she's a professor like you and she's, um, she's, a, she's a power lifter. And then he was like, you're a professor and a mixed martial artist. He was like, I think you two should totally meet. And so we met and we were just both talking about like the intersection of our, our hobbies and our passions and our professional careers and like how, you know, like the, the, the best thing ever to do to be able to achieve was to combine both, like be able to like intertwine like our hobbies and, and interests with like our academic work. And so there, um, you know, just conversation started and then we ended up building a team. So there's another professor, she's in nursing and then another one who's in sociology. And we have um, like an amazing um, 
person, a research consultant working with us. Uh, she's a, she's an MSW in social work. So we are talking about like, how do we, um, well, one, uh, just thinking about the benefits, like the personal benefits that like our hobbies had for us. And like, one of the things that we both talked about was like using it as like a healing modality. Um, I also, so I, like, I, I think one of the first experiences that I shared, I was like, you know, when I first started, like I was initially just looking for like different kind of like a level of fitness. But when I went to my gym, like I, um, they actually ended the fitness program. I was like, just take the regular technique classes and you'll get better benefit. And I was like really hesitant at first. And I was like, no, people actually like are punching each other in the face and kicking each other in the face. I'm not doing that. But eventually I went over um, and my hesitancy was like about just some trauma that I had in the back and in, in like earlier in my life. And so after like just being in it, I started to just feel like super empowered, um, mainly about my personal safety, because I had always been like an anxiety of a fear of not being able to keep myself safe. And like over time um, training, it wasn't like just the skills that I was learning, but it was like the mental confidence that I had, like just that. And then I also have depression. And so I was going through a period of my life where I was just like, I was in, um, and I was in school, I was in my PhD program and like I was parenting and like working. And I just, and I also have like mental health, I also have depression on top of all of that. And I just was in such a deep low space. And like one of the things that I did when I could was like go train. And it was odd that it like made me feel better because I used to also run and I knew like the effects that running had, which is why I ran. But like that would only be temporary. Like after, you know, I would use that as a coping mechanism, it wouldn't be as effective anymore. But it was different with like martial arts. It was like more long-term and lasting. It was really interesting as I was talking to the owner of our gym, who also suffers from depression. And he was like, you're here every day. I was like, yeah, it's like, sometimes when I walk in here, I just like immediately feel better. And he said, I painted all everything yellow. Like all the walls are yellow. Like everything's yellow. He said, I painted everything yellow because I have depression and yellow mimics sunlight, which makes you feel better. And I was like, oh my God. And then like, and it wasn't just that. It was like the experience of talking to like another person about my depression, about depression at space. And it was funny because like that, that conversation sparked like so many other conversations about um, depression, um, like just for, like the athletes and and like fighters, you know, like it was like something we were all struggling with. And, and like that was one of the spaces that we were using to heal ourselves. And then when I started jujitsu and, and that, and like adding a new skill set to like, you know, my repertoire of like self-defense mechanisms, it just like the whole thing was just so impactful. Like it had completely shifted my life because it shifted my perspective, which shifted my reality. And so I just wanted um, to see if that could be something that somebody else could experience. And with my other research partner, the one, um, she's a trauma-informed power lifter. She's also a competitor. She still competes at international world levels. Uh, she's amazing. And so it's like the same thing with powerlifting has done for her in terms of healing, like mentally and emotionally. And so that's that's kind of like the the basis, like the foundation of like our research project is like, you know, can we think about because um, obviously like movement, not just physical activity, like movement is like a central theme in like the activities that we were doing movement. 
and like thinking about what are some barriers um, to movement for people and like why, you know? And so like we went through all the gamut of things and like, um, you know, especially like gender, obviously, right? Like, you know, all the different stuff, the stigmas and stereotypes around like even like women in weightlifting, for example, right? Or women in martial arts. And um, so we went through all of that and we're thinking of all the barriers and like, you know, the, the, the economic stratification, like all of that. And so we were like, and you know, which populations are most affected or have, have least access to like these types of like movement and healing modalities. And so women of color um, are populations that are most effective, you know, like, like one, like just start with the idea and perception about like, you know, what like we're supposed to be doing with our bodies that like the the goal of exercise is to you know discipline our bodies and that is such a harsh perspective to take on your body like the vessel the amazing vessel that carried you from the moment you like became a real thing until your death like why why would i want to like inflict punishment like it's, it's punishment like why would i want to inflict punishment on my body Right. And then it's and then like the expected outcome or the assumption is that like once I punish my body enough and discipline enough to where like it's acceptable, not for me, but like for everybody else, the, like then I have to like a work hard to like maintain that. And then I'm supposed to achieve some type of life satisfaction from that after I've been punishing my body for so long, just so warped. Right. Like that's how I thought that. I mean, like we're all socialized around that idea of like exercise. So like making the distinction between like movement and exercise and like exercise being, and because of that exercise is like so daunting to people, you know, like people who want to like have body changes or whatever, for whatever, what motivates them. Like, I think one of the subconscious fears that people have is that like, you're literally punishing your body. When you're talking about diet, dieting, you're restricting yourself, you're punishing your body. And so like trying to change like that entire kind of discourse, especially in relation to women's bodies. Um, and then also thinking about um, like how the, how, how we wear life on our bodies not just like the wear and tear that life has on our bodies but like how we wear life on our bodies how we wear our experiences and like specifically trauma like trauma shows up physically um it shows up physiologically in the body and, and then it shows up like emotionally you know and how we like if we aren't aware of them, we can actually just be walking traumas, interacting with other walking traumas. If we're not aware of how like they shape all aspects of ourselves. And, and so movement for me was something that like, with the, let me back up a little bit. The experience of trauma disconnects your mind from your body. So like, there's this like, conflicting relationship between your mind and your body because if it's if it's an, a, a personal inner like a, a personal or physical like physical violence right specifically physical violence you know for me I'm speaking personally physical violence was that type of trauma absolutely gave me a mind-body disconnect because I was I didn't realize that I had carried around all this resentment uh, from my body because it didn't do what I I want, thought it should have done in those moments, like to protect myself, like it betrayed me and didn't keep me safe. And it's specifically because like my survival response, you know, is fight, flight, um, freeze, 
um the other one is but mine was freeze and so like that I I just I would carry around not just like the pain of the experience but like the anger and bitterness and resentment at myself because like I didn't act the way that like inside I know I could act so like martial arts um also helped me reconnect my mind to my body and gave me like this new appreciation for it and like and and just addressing like those wounds that like I didn't even know were there but I was living them out through my body so like that like those philosophical ideas about like why we intertwine the like movement modalities we did like the powerlifting the same for Noel like not thinking about like like revolutionizing like weightlifting especially when it comes to like women's and women's bodies and like the idea about like a women shouldn't be weightlifting I mean this was so crazy to me I'd like this man said I said something about being muscular and he was like women can't be muscular and I was like what do you mean women don't have muscles what are the things that are holding up our skeletons when we walk around like what are you talking about like everybody has muscles <laughs> and and like it was like the, he looked at me so crazy and I'm like you literally think women don't have muscles like what is holding up our skeletal frame yo <laughs> um and so and like and, but women in that same perception like with that same thing like um you know like when the fitness beginning of the year you know like happy new year get fit kind of like like that propaganda goes around like what I see on all like the social media sites and the blogs when they're like mass like advertising these like get fit programs like in the comments women are like well I'm not trying to get muscular or like you know like I just want to get toned like I don't want to you know like like this you know, fear of like lifting weights and then also like the end goal too. So one, the fear of lifting, lifting weights, like somehow is going to like masculinize, masculinize you. Mm-hmm. Um, like men say that too in the comments and they absolutely masculinize women that do lift weights. So like that, that perception is like accurate from women. And then the other part, like the end goal too, is like thinking about like lifting weights, not like for physical strength, but like redefining the word strength itself to mean that like, you don't exercise or like lift weights to get strong. Like you already are strong. Like, let's be clear. Um, One of the findings um, that just really stuck out to me from one of our participants. So one aspect of our our research, we had um, the the people, the women in our study do uh, body mapping where they drew outlines of their bodies. And like, we had certain prompts and asked them to like, like visit like visibly with like you know markers and like color pencils and stuff visibly visibly mark the areas of their body where they you know felt strong and um I remember like one of the women was like oh I, I think she might have said something about her legs or something and I and we were just like like absolutely like that's like that's an area that like we should all feel strong in like you know, I was like, you know, for me, like it was my, my arms, my arms and my legs when I was carrying a car seat and like four bags of groceries like that, like there's strength that we like already have. And so this woman, she was talking about how, like, you know, just realizing that her legs were so powerful and like they carried her around and like helped her do like these activities that we take for granted. And like knowing that, like, so the goal, like, for example, to lift weights is like not to like get stronger like you already are you know like it's some other self-fulfilling like goal not just like that to transform your body like the, your body's all right the way that it is you know um so like that 
the goal of like all of those modalities and the same thing with rock climbing, especially because we're working with women of color, like these activities are activities that, you know, we see little to zero representation in like adventure sports. Um, you know, there are people of color who do them, but like the, the, the visual representation is poor. Um, but that's just not wise because there's a literal lack of representation of like people of color and especially women of color and like adventure sports like rock climbing and we're lucky at the organization that we're at like they have one of the oldest like rock climbing gyms here and um and they have amazing programs but like one of the issues that they have is like attracting people of color and they're in the community and they can't get people of color there so like including that but what was specific to the rock climbing was um, another central theme was this con was a concept of trust like creating or establishing new trusting relationships like so through movement establishing a trust relationship with your body like you know trust your body to like do something that or move in a way like in jujitsu specifically when I teach the women's program I use this a lot about the word trust like you know because they'll get frustrated after I show like one or two techniques because jujitsu is so technical and so like after you show one or te two techniques that have like six steps but they're like beginner techniques you know and like they get frustrated and I go well you know like um yeah absolutely like the the um like all the techniques and like you know moving your body like put your hand here and like put your foot here and I was like all that stuff is like annoying and irritating but like what I want you to take away from this experience is that like while it's irritating you you are doing the movement like you were able to like spin on your lower back like you were doing all the things and the reason why you were frustrated is because you didn't think you could get it and like you know, the moment you let go and trusted your body, like you got it. So like establishing this new trust relationship with your body, like that's so important. And then in the rock climbing, like, so like, you know, none of us and, and the women are studying none of, I think, no, I think one of them had rock climbed before I think one, but no, but none of us, we were all looking at the wall, like, oh no, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. But you had to have a partner to do rock climbing. And so there was an establishment of trust with somebody you didn't know, like establishing trust, establishing your body, like with somebody, like establishing trust with somebody else with your body, like to take, to keep you safe. Like, you know, already when you, like there's a fractured relationship between you and your body and your ability, your, your perception of your ability to keep yourself safe, let alone like trust somebody else to do it. So like, it was just such a, um, wonderful thing to witness like you know people who don't look like the people that are traditionally in these spaces um people who are here for the same but like different reasons you know like being marginalized experiencing trauma um but like also finding like like also but also reclaiming like power and strength and and like those vulnerabilities that are left behind because of the trauma so I think I've talked quite a bit. <laughs> I just wanted to give you the a good context for it. Thank you. Thank you. Like it's an incredible project. And I think you touched on so many themes that we think about in trauma healing, you know, building trust, creating a sense of safety, having peer support relationships. Like these are huge, huge things that do healing work. They're the kind of things that shift, you know think about um there's a partner in all of those sports even in weightlifting like if you overcome the scary thing which is often like one rm testing like lifting 
you know, for one time something as heavy as you possibly can, you have a spotter. You have another person who's there at the very least cheering you on, but oftentimes also, you know, protecting you from the bar in case you injure yourself. And jujitsu is obviously done with a partner. Rock climbing when you've got a rope is definitely done with a partner. And it's, it's really cool that you you all have brought together this community because I'm assuming now it almost is like a community of women who are maybe strangers before, but I highly doubt they're strangers by the end of going through all that together. No, not at all. Like I'm actually doing some, um, a couple of weeks of refresher clinics for some of them. And then what we've had um, sustained from the project is um, we have a wonderful group of students who are also power lifters and working um, with our the, the researcher on our project who's a power lifter. They were running a feminist power hour lifting clinic. And so like it's like 6.30 in the mornings, a couple of days a week. And like all of the women, they're all, everyone is all in a group chat. And like, you know, they post there about meeting up at the, the weightlifting clinic, but they also just like post other things and like inspirational notes and thoughts and ideas and so absolutely like all of the women are we're like we're I think this is this is always going to be a relationship that is going to remain significant in all of our minds yes I love that and if anyone wants to learn more about Noelle who is the uh, weightlifter she's been on the podcast it's quite a while ago I'll put the link in the show notes to how many episodes ago it was but that's how Amber and I met so yeah you can learn more about Noelle through previous episodes uh, I wonder what was the structure of the program? Was it like an eight week course or like, did you just get them to try everything once or twice or like, how did you structure it? So we had them in individual clinics, but we had them over um, a course a week. So like the first cycle we did, I think we did six weeks. So it was six clinics. Um, and then the, the second cycle is the same thing. So we did just a series of clinics, um, over, uh, weeks and they were consecutive weeks, but now I'm doing like a refresher clinic just for the jujitsu. And that's just like spread out like two a month. Um, because you know, like the, the clinics were, were, were wonderful, but they were a commitment of time for like everyone. So, you know, we did two short cycles, but like one of the things that, um, you know, we're also thinking about is like sustainability, like mm-hmm. how do we keep something like this going? So like, you know, funding is always, you know, like the unpleasant conversation at the end, especially when you see something has had like an impact, like it was just amazing to see like, in a, like a very, like a, a, a impact early on. Um, we received an award for our research um, through one of the funders, the Institute for Women's Leadership at, at the university that we're working with. So it's just, it's just been amazing. And, and, you know, like to think like, okay, how do, and how do, how do we repeat this? Like, that's the other thing, like, that's the goal of research, right? Is to be able to, that's why it's so like, takes so much time to write everything down because it's methodical only because people are supposed to be able to replicate what you did. So thinking about, you know, how can we replicate like other programs or iterations of, you know, what we're doing and do they need to specifically be those like modalities or can they be other ones that like function for the same reason, not to like transform or change or like use any of that kind of language. Um, but more like healing centered and like person centered, like 
descriptions of those kind of programs. Do you think so? Yeah, well, absolutely. I can't say it. <laughs> Listen, let me not sound so academic. We need money. <laughs> money 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 funding like that's how we could keep stuff going like funding you know that's what we need that's 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 what communities need we need money that's what we need as researchers we need money so <laughs> that's that's how you can keep stuff going we got the people we got the people we got the resources like every community has such rich resources you got the people oh there's also a yoga component um, and, and we always have a woman of color um, do the, the yoga component, but like, like that, like paying people, like the community, like people in the community are doing great work like this. Um, you know, in our program, we also gave out kids, wellness kids, all of our participants with yoga mats. Um, some of them had never done yoga before and didn't own a yoga mat. You know, like we had, we used some of our research funds to get some of the women critical items. Like we don't even think about that are barriers to like participating in exercise and movement like you know women who like need like certain types of bras Mm -hmm. to like exercise in like larger breasted women like you know that's not a like a common thing that's talked that's talked about about how like access to like the kind of clothing you need to to like even do movement stuff like having a good bra is like essential you know but like that's not even something that like is even thought of as a barrier, like shoes, you know, getting shoes, like for weightlifting, you know, like you need a good pair of Converse, like, you know, like, like being able to, to purchase that, you know, those kinds of things that would have ordinarily been barriers for like those women, but being able to do things like that, you know, that's like, that's where the money goes and the, and obviously facilities, right? Like having facilities to do it, but yeah. We'll brainstorm. We'll brainstorm. We'll figure out a way to get money to keep these kind of programs going, right? Because they are so critical. They have such rippling effects within our communities and the people that they affect and their families and the people close to them. And everyone knows what I mean by ripple. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I want to come a little bit back. We're almost running out of time, but I want to make sure... um, that I've really touched upon anything that you would like to pass on to uh, people who are interested in learning about the impact of race, of racism, women of color in the martial arts space. So I guess as a recap, we spoke about for coaches who maybe are listening to this or have been starting to think and going, yeah, I've never considered the students in my program might be experiencing racial microaggressions or I've never actually noticed that we don't have that much diversity within our club. And actually that's a really valuable thing that I might like to promote and start to bring, um, you know, people in so that the mat space does accurately represent my community space. Um, Would there be anything more that you would want to touch on to, to share with folks? Yeah. Like, and also um, this, I had this conversation um, with some coaches because all the other coaches are men except for me. Mm. And I like, I I said, you know, like a good practice that I use like during the women's class is when we're doing technique, I always ask permission to touch people. Like just saying like, can I move your hand here? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just thinking about that because um, like, you don't know what 
just paying attention. You don't know what you don't you don't know what people are coming in there for. But like statistically, you can assume that women are coming in there because they're looking for some type of self-defense because they have already experienced like interpersonal violence. They have already experienced it statistically. I'm like, mm-hmm. you can just go ahead and assume that. And I'm like, and and uh, and assuming that that like that then that should shape the way that you interact with people differently. And this is just like for everybody, like making it like known that like you, you need to ask, you should ask permission. Like knowing when to ask permission to like touch somebody's like body, you know, Mm -hmm. like knowing that, that those kinds of things, the awareness of that, like not that it needs to be, you know, just educate yourself. (laughs) There's just like, there's, you know, there, because I, you know, it could go wrong where, you know, someone is like, you know, the, their hyper awareness, which can also like negatively shape the experience. Because they're like, there, there will be some women that don't come in there for that, or they're not like there in their life or they're like, even acknowledging like those kinds of experiences that they might've had in their background. I'm not saying that, but just like, you know, practicing like humanity with care, (laughs) like in those spaces, you know, for everyone. And like, not assuming that like, because these are all adults that you don't have to have like, like mat conversations, like after class mat chats, like, listen, y'all are adults. I shouldn't have to tell you this, but you know, don't do this. Like, this could be offensive to people. Don't do that. You know, like, I'd like every now and again. And like, you never know. Like, we have mat chats like that sometimes where like some people roll their eyes and like, it's like, okay, example, the hygiene mat chats. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people that roll their eyes like, oh, I know, I know. But there are like, seriously, people who didn't know. Like, you need to wash your belt. <laughs> like, they're, they're like that kind of stuff. Like, there's, there's a couple of people who will have benefited from that mat chat because they honestly didn't know. You know, and especially when it comes to the microaggressions, like um, a lot of them are uh, subconscious. So people don't even know that, oh, like I probably shouldn't like say that, you know, when I talk to this person, because that could like be offensive. So I think that's important, like, you know, that those mat chat conversations around some of those topics, I think are really could be really helpful. I love it. I think there's a really good starting place, right? If you're starting by being open-minded, having conversations, like we said earlier, creating an awareness, trying, you know, if you're thinking about having mat chats, then in order to do that, you got to be looking around the mat and seeing if you can notice for where those things are. And even just the act of doing that could be overwhelming. You can start to see how much of it is there and it's like, whoa, you know, but then you've got something to do. You've got some action that you can take, like, especially if you're, white um like the discomfort of being like oh, I'm gonna have to have this conversation and like seeing all these things there is like the fact that you just get to feel com- uncomfortable about having the conversation is literally white privilege you know like yeah. so yeah I'm gonna be right. talking about this more in the future because I feel really passionately about it you yeah know? I mean I I like what I tell my students and I go I like I that that that's the thing that trips me out when people like, especially when it comes to, like, race and, and gender, but, like, mostly race and, like, people want express their discomfort with, like, um, well, okay, so imagine my, imagine the level of discomfort I felt when I actually experienced a thing that makes you feel uncomfortable to talk about. So, like, at that point, the actual experience of it is, like, more than just mere discomfort. So, like, to center yourself and be concerned about your own level of comfort, but not even acknowledging, like, 
that I actually had the experience. So like, this is secondhand for you and you get to express and not just express discomfort. You get to excuse yourself from the conversation because the conversation is uncomfortable. But like my entire racial reality is uncomfortable and like more than uncomfortable it's painful sometimes. So like, I don't think that's a good argument for you to stand on that like you feel uncomfortable. And if you truly care, if you really truly care, then you know that like, discomfort always like leads to growth so like being willing to put yourself in an uncomfortable position because you know at the end of it you're going to be a better person so i i think that um yes it's all those things like that's, that's something that like i talk about that every day in the classroom so i'm sorry you just brought up brought me back no i i i'm 100% understand. Well, I don't think I can say 100% understand, but I'm trying to understand, I think. Um, so yeah, thank you really for sharing that and especially sharing it in a way that not only brings in your deep understanding from all of research that you've conducted and the fact that you talk about it in the classroom every day, but also the fact that you're living it every day and you've lived it on the mats. And I think it's, it's really not something that a lot of people have an awareness of so it's 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 really really valuable to start to bring an awareness to those points where there's those intersections particularly between you know race and gender race and class gender and class like there are many 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 intersections um where people experience pain day to day so it's it's really really important that we keep having conversations like this and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me and to share your wisdom with everyone it's incredible absolutely thank you for having me I'm honored to be your guest can you tell everyone where they can find you if they want to find out more about the project I know you all have a documentary coming out soon all those kind of good things yes we do um so we are on instagram and we are called, we are at Justice in Movement. Mm -hmm. And then um, we have, I'm not sure if these are public. We've done um, some conference presentations. I don't think those are public, but um, for now, like we're on social media, Justice. Oh, and then we are, our, our video, um, well, our documentary trailer is on Vimeo at uh, Restorative Justice in Movement on Vimeo. Awesome. I am going to put the link to that, put the link to the trailer. I'm going to put the link to your Instagram in case anyone wants to get in touch with you and check out what you've been up to all in the show notes so people can follow up. But again, I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you, Georgia. All right. Take care. Have you thought of something to be grateful for today? What was it? I'm grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. shapes me but me don't
gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one to power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change the specters. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets, we're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection, I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands, I break all these bars, barriers, and obstacles. They can't cage me, they can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers, cause I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass, I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much, I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me. Cause I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be. The positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, hold record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, hold record it, huh?